The reading for this morning is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes when an individual writes a novel, they'll place it in a historical setting. Whether it's fiction or a historical novel, it's often placed in the setting. Remember that famous opening line of Dickens' work where he says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Remember that? Places characters in sort of a hazy historical setting. This shall we say novel? Can I use that word for Ruth? A historical story is placed in a historical setting. And instead of opening as Dickens does, this novel opens this way. It was in the days of the judges. What could that possibly mean? 
Actually, the book that precedes this book in our canon is Judges. And the last verse of the book of Judges, we hear this line. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You could put it another way. Judges, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was high, it was low. It was God judging his people and God redeeming his people. And the cycle just kept going on and on and on. And in the middle of that somewhere, we're not quite sure where, the story of Ruth emerges. Now, it wasn't just the historical narrative of up and down for the people of God and what you might call chaos in Israel. There was upheaval all around Israel. Uh, to the north, Greece was going, according to what we understand of the historical context. We think we know that at that time, Greece was going through upheaval. To the south, Egypt was in tremendous decline. And to the south, Egypt was the place, remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they all went to Egypt during a famine. The breadbasket of the world, really the thing that held the whole Near East together at times of calamity was Egypt and the Nile River. They're in decline. And to the west of Israel, there was a group of people, warring people, called the Sea People. In the biblical narrative, you've heard the, the name Philistines. They were part of the Sea People. And the Sea People, well, well, they were just wrecking havoc on Mesopotamia. They were warring tribes that were devastating. So just imagine all around them was decline and chaos, and right in the middle of them was the ups and downs of the judgment of God and sin. It was in the days of the judges, says the narrator of the book of Ruth. And what happened? Well, in the days of the judges, a man called Elimelech, realizes that the famine in Bethlehem is severe enough that he may starve. Now, not everybody left, but Elimelech did. He said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to the east. It's across the Jordan River to Moab, a place where apparently there was more fertile land because the way the Mediterranean Sea... Uh, is out here and the wind comes over them and then crosses the Jordan River. All of that apparently created more of a weather system in the eastern part of Palestine than in the western part. And so routinely in Moab, even during times of famine, it was fertile. Elimelech said, i got to take care of my family. And just like Isaac and Jacob and Abraham who went to Egypt, he goes to Moab. But unfortunately for Naomi, his wife, after being in Moab for a short period of time, he dies. His two sons who went with them were old enough to marry, and they marry, and then they die. And Naomi is in a position of being a widow. Now, there's plenty of widows today. You know many of them. My mother is a widow, and it's not a good state of affairs. No one wants to be left behind. On the other hand, we do have a safety net in our culture, far more than the ancients did. There was no such thing as a safety net. And for them, to be a widow was to be absolutely destitute. 
We, we don't understand how destitute they were because it's not our culture. But let me try to paint a picture. If you were a widow, you depended on your sons for your livelihood. That's all you had. Because you didn't work. You weren't in the fields. The culture was such that you tended the home. There was no home to tend. You depended on your sons. And then get this, Naomi's sons die. She's got no husband. She's got no son. She's absolutely destitute. Add to that, she's in a foreign land. She has no family. Whatever friends they've made are friends that are foreign friends. No safety net. Naomi says, I got to get out of here. By the way, the situation for widows in the ancient world was so severe that routinely widows would sell themselves into slavery in order to live. Not only that, it was not uncommon for widows to sell themselves as prostitutes in order to live. There were laws written on the books that allowed for prostitution for widows. What a safety net. In those circumstances, Naomi hears a bit of good news. I wonder how the good news traveled to her. You know, you can't get on the Internet back then. You can't verify your uh, sources very well. All you know is that you hear things. And what she heard from travelers, perhaps from Bethlehem, is that God had blessed his people and brought them food. That's all Naomi needed to hear. I'm going to go with the story. Even if it's a rumor, I hear that God's blessed the land of Israel. I'm going back. So she turns from Moab and goes back across that Jordan River and takes a road that leads her to Bethlehem. But as she turns to go, her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, say, we're going with you. We're, we're not going to leave you alone. You are destitute. We no longer have husbands, but we're not going to leave you. We're going with you. And Ruth, you know the story. You read it. She says, no, my daughters, don't do that. Stay with your people. You're better off. You have possibilities there. She doesn't say this, but we know she could have said this. You're young. You could be remarried. Things could be okay for you. Stay there. And, and they say, oh, no, we need to go with you. And then she says, no, please stay. And Orpah says, oh, okay, you're making a lot of sense to me. I'm no fool. I know how to make a way for myself. It's not to go to a foreign land as a widow. I'm going to stay, and maybe I can make a new life. And Ruth says, not a chance. I'm not leaving you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people are going to be my people. And your God is going to be my God. I will not leave you. What a wonderful statement to a destitute woman. Ruth says, here we go. <laughs> and off to Bethlehem they go. Now when they arrive in Bethlehem, this is uh, the part of the story that wasn't read. You would expect that they would be delighted. I suppose they were. You would expect the people would be delighted. And I think according to the text they were, they welcomed her. But when Naomi entered Bethlehem, and people welcomed her with open arms, her response, well, it didn't match their welcome. As a matter of fact, it says the whole 
town was stirred when Naomi came home. Now you're thinking to yourself, are you kidding? A city, a whole town stirred because one widow comes back? Don't think city, eh? Ancient civilizations, famine. We're talking villages for the most part, several hundred maybe. We don't know the size of Bethlehem at that time, but it was small. And it was a story. People didn't leave and return. That was news. It was talked about. It was the buzz of the town. They welcomed her with open arms. And what does Naomi say? Naomi addresses those who roll out the welcome mat and says this to them. Stop. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. I know the woman you knew before I left. That's not me. God has poured out his judgment on me for some reason. And I'm destitute. He's given me bitterness. In effect, I'm bitter. Don't try to cheer me. Wow, welcome home, Naomi. <laughs> Naomi settles in. And that's what we know of the entrance celebration. And shortly after that, as the story continues to play out, right after that, as a matter of fact, you hear this. Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and glean. Now, what does that mean? It means we're impoverished. People in our situation glean the fields. When the harvest starts, the harvesters are responsible to leave behind just a little bit of the grain. In this case, barley. It was early harvest for those who were poor and the widows and the orphans. It was a, a mosaic law. So they left some behind. And she said, just please let me go glean. I think it's interesting. Just the way the text reads. It's so cryptic. Here's, here's, here's the response. And only this. She says, Naomi, to Ruth, okay, daughter, Go. Maybe I read too much into it. Okay, it's worthless, but go. Okay, we're destitute, but do what you got to do. Okay, go. I'm not going. I'm bitter. Ruth leaves the house, and she goes to glean. And the text says, I, I love this, as it turns out, she happened to be gleaning in the field of Boaz. Now, you know something's coming if you haven't read this story before. As it turned out, it was the field of Boaz. Who's Boaz? You don't know right up front. All you know is this, that she starts gleaning. And she does very well, by the way, and brings back a lot of grain, more than they would have expected. But as she gleans, as the story continues, she's in the field with the widows and the orphans and the poor behind the harvesters, and Boaz shows up. He's been away, and he's coming back to his field, and as he shows up, he says, blessings, blessings to you all. And they say, blessings to you. It's a greeting. God be with you. God bless you. They return the God bless you. And Boaz is just, I, I see him, I, I'm sure it wasn't like this because they didn't have probably horses that looked this way, but I see him on a big white horse, you know, just kind of going through his view. Blessings on you, blessing. Blessings on you, sir. And he gets down off his horse and he talks to his men and he says to his men, hey, I couldn't help but notice there's a new woman in the field. That one over there, what's her name? I mean, 
Again, maybe I'm reading into the story. It's not, it seems to me, just, oh, there's another person out there who's that woman. And they say to him, oh, that, that woman, yes, uh, she's got a story. She came back from Moab. She's a Moabite. She came back with Naomi. You may remember her. That's her mother-in-law, and she came back to care for her. And we don't know how much detail they told Boaz, but he was fascinated. Perhaps Ruth caught his eye, but he was especially intrigued by Ruth's character. And so you know what he does? He calls to her later on and says, um, come here. Um, I want to tell you something. I don't want you gleaning in anybody else's field. Eh? Well, I got a good field. <laughs> Glean in my field. I want you to be behind my harvesters. This is your place. As a matter of fact, I want you to drink from the jars that my men prepare for the harvesters. You, you don't have to find your own water. You drink from our jars. He tells the men who are harvesting the field, don't embarrass her if she's picking up the wrong thing. Maybe she's not very good at this. Maybe she's never gleaned before. Help her out. Leave behind some really good stuff, okay? Well, you know they know something's going on. <laughs> Leaves some good stuff for Ruth, so they do. At mealtime, the text says, Boaz calls to Ruth. And he says, come over and eat with me. Hey, that's the first dinner date in this narrative, right? He's asking her out, and she comes over to eat with him. And as she eats with him, they talk. And he um, says to her, I'm glad you're in my field. And she says to him, I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> she says to him, what have I done to get your favor? And he says, oh, I heard about you. And how you've treated Naomi. May the Lord bless you. Or put it another way. I'm blessing you for that. He sends her home of course with more grain than normal. And uh, she goes back home. And she tells Naomi. I, I gleaned today. Naomi says where'd you glean? And she said in the field of Boaz. Now Naomi might be a little bitter. But she's a sly old fox. And she said, Boaz, huh? You know who Boaz is? No, I don't know Boaz. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers, says Naomi. Fast forward the story, and Naomi eventually lets Ruth go back, and she does her work, and then on one occasion she says to Ruth, I have a plan for you, Ruth. When they're threshing the wheat... I want you to go into the threshing field. The place, it's probably a great big huge stone where they thresh the wheat. Not a barn, but probably open air according to the pictures they've taken in archaeological discoveries. And I want you to go there, and after they've threshed the wheat, they're going to be tired. I know these things, and they're going to eat, and they're going to drink, and then they're going to sleep. What I want you to do, Ruth, I want you to go to the threshing floor. And when they go to sleep, slide in there and uncover the feet of Boaz and lay down beside him. Ooh, that sounds a little risque. Actually, it was. Women weren't even supposed to be there. 
Furthermore, they wouldn't have uncovered the feet of the master of the field. Now, sometimes the reason, most of the time, the reason they slept at the threshing floor was to guard it from robbers. And so in the middle of the night, we read that Boaz is startled by something and he awakes. Maybe thinking somebody's trying to steal grain. He awakes and he notices there is a woman at his feet. And he says, who are you? Okay, no lights, right? It's just dark, open air. Who are you? She said, oh, it's your servant Ruth. Hmm. Remember me? Then she says, would you be so kind as to take your blanket and cover me with it? Wow, that's big. It's, it's really a virtual marriage proposal. Will you cover me? Will you place me under your protection? Boaz obliges. He not only obliges, he says to her, man, you're a remarkable woman. You could have gone after younger men. We don't know how old he was. You could have gone after younger men, but you didn't. You came to me. Yes, not only that, I'll cover you and I'll fill your shawl up with a huge amount of grain to take back to Naomi. Take care of her. And then he says, and you can, you can imagine all this is being whispered, right? Because the other men are laying around the asleep, we would assume. And he says, by the way, before morning comes, please get up and get out of here. This is not good protocol, Ruth. You know, if you stay here in the morning, we'll be in the tabloid papers in Bethlehem. Okay, don't do that to me. Get out. She obliges him and leaves early in the morning before anyone is awakened. He says to her before she leaves, You know, Ruth, you're right. I am a kinsman redeemer for you and for Naomi. And what that means is that a man who was in the family line, say, for instance, I, I have two brothers. Suppose in that era, both my brothers passed away. It would be my family responsibility to take on their wives and their property and everything like that to keep the family name going. And their wives would become my wives. That's not happening. Anyway, that's the way it used to work. And so, Boaz is in line to do that. And he says, you're right, I am in line, but I have to tell you something. I'm not the first in line. There's another one who's first in line, and I've got to talk to him first. I'm willing to be the redeemer, but let me speak with him first. So the next day, he goes to the city gates where the elders make all the decisions, and he basically lays it out there. He says, you know, Fred, we don't know. His name wasn't Fred. You know, Fred, you have the ability to take the property of the widow Naomi and all the inheritance there. It could be yours. As a matter of fact, it's your responsibility. You're first in line to do this. It's your duty. Will you do it? And the man says, sure, I'll do that. And then Boaz, he's not telling the whole story. He's holding back. He says, oh, oh, by the way, there's a woman involved. Her name is Ruth. She's part of the deal. And he goes, I'm out. No, can't do it anymore. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. Did he think there's no way I'm taking on a wife? I've already got one. 
or two or three? Is he saying to himself, okay, property, I'm good with that, but people, no. A widow who's old, I'll take care of her, but I'm not taking... I don't know what he's thinking. He just says, no, I can't do that. And Boaz says, okay, I'm next in line. I'll do it. And he says, deal. You know how they seal the deal? They take off their sandal and they exchange a sandal, one with the other. As the elders look on, it's the way they exchange. They make the deal, sandal is exchanged, and off they go. And you know the rest of the story. It's, it's easy to piece together, right? Boaz takes Ruth and becomes her husband. And Naomi is the mother-in-law, and they live happily ever after. Boaz is, is, is a hero in the story. And it's a wonderful story. But I want to focus on three characters just in conclusion and make a few comments. First, Naomi and then Ruth, and then a third. First, Naomi. Naomi, I think, is bitter. Okay, this is going to be a harsh reading of Naomi, okay? Just telling you up front. If you think that it's improper to give such a harsh reading of Naomi, fine. You can do another reading next week, and I'll take the week off. I'm happy to take a day off. But today... Naomi is going to get harsh treatment. Because as I read the text, and I read the story over and over again this week, and read other people who read the story for a living, and it occurs to me that it's hard to say that Naomi's attitude is proper. I think Naomi is full of self-pity and negativity. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. God has smitten me. And there's no evidence that God smote her. There really isn't. She's interpreting the events as some kind of punishment from God. We have no reason to believe it's a punishment from God. You could suggest it is, but I don't know how you get there. Let me put it another way. It's life. I'm not in this position But husbands die, and sons die, and people become widows. And Naomi's one of them. And she's not the only one. And in that situation, you have a variety of ways to respond. And she responded with bitterness and self-pity. Bitterness and self-pity is devastating, my friends. You know it is. It sours your relationships with others. You can't find joy in what others have. You can't find joy in what you have. All you can see is the negative. You're immersed in self-pity. And honestly, we've all been there, right? Maybe for short periods of time, but maybe like Naomi, it seemed to redefine her life, at least in the short run. God has forsaken me. God has punished me. My life is tough. I'm going to be overwhelmed by negative thoughts and self-pity. Um, can I invite you to write your own story on this one? I don't have any money, and they do. And my kids don't have what their kids have, and... 
self-pity. She's beautiful. He's good-looking. They've got it all. I've got nothing. Self-pity. I did everything according to the rules. They're prospering and they're unrighteous. Self-pity. I followed God. No, I'm not perfect, but I was a good parent. I believed that mantra from Scripture, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he won't depart from it. And my kids departed. Theirs didn't. Self-pity. And so you cannot celebrate the blessings of God in the life of the other because you're overwhelmed with self-pity. You cannot celebrate the blessings of life in your life because you have blessings, because you're overwhelmed with self-pity. I say this because I know it so well. You may think I'm reading your story. No, I'm reading mine. I try not to do it publicly, but I go through periods of self-pity, and my poor wife endures it. It has for 33 years. God bless her. Others sometimes hear it. I'll never forget on one occasion. Um, I was going through one of my many funks, and I had a good friend, and good friends are good for a lot of things. You know, you can bear your soul to them and all that kind of stuff, and... You can get counsel and advice from them and encouragement. And so I thought, I'm going to tell my friend what I'm going through. And I'm just going to whine a little bit. And he let me talk for a little while. Not long enough according to my standards, but he let me talk for a little while. And, and then he looked at me and he said, Bob, you don't wear self-pity very well. It doesn't look good on you. Now that is not what I wanted to hear. But it's exactly what I needed to hear. Because it was true. In effect, my friend said, put your big boy pants on and quit whining and thank God for what you have. Um... Maybe one of your friends has said that. Or maybe it came from your spouse. Those are really hard words to hear from them, aren't they? But they may be true. Self-pity and negative thinking can be destructive to us and to others. Character one, Naomi. Character two, Ruth. I see in the story of Ruth, not perfection. I don't know enough to know whether or not she was even close to perfection, but what I do see in her is active waiting. I see a person who actively waited upon God. I see a person who the same circumstances, she didn't have to have the same circumstances. She accepted Naomi's circumstances. And in the middle of it, she accepted the reality that was hers, and she waited on God Actively. Let me put it another way. In effect, she looked at Naomi before Naomi was about to leave Moab and said, I want to tell you something, my daughter. I mean, my, my mother. I want to tell you something. Your life is not over. 
And I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going with you. And my life is not over. And I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to walk through it with you. And we are going to see the hand of God again. That was the attitude of Ruth. Because as the narrator describes the story, as soon as she lands in the place called Bethlehem, she says to Naomi, can I go glean the fields? Sure, go ahead, my daughter. Can I get active? Can I work? Can I do what I know I can do? She got active, she worked, and she was identified, and she was blessed by God. The third story, uh, part of the story, third character, I should say, in the story is not Boaz, God. See, all these stories are about God. The people in the story are, are, are secondary actors. It's God writing his plan. It's God being faithful. It's God, as you recall, all the way back through Abraham, where we started at the beginning of this summer. It's God saying, I will fulfill my promise. I will create a covenant people to bless the world. I will not be thwarted. And so in the midst of political chaos to the north, warring to the west, and a declining Egypt, the breadbasket of the world to the south, and chaos in the middle of Palestine, in the midst of all that, I'm going to take somebody who walked away from Bethlehem and became a Moabite and died, and his sons died, and I'll take two widows. And I'll reestablish my covenant plan. Go figure. That's God. And so he does. And Boaz and Ruth have children. And their children lead to King David. And King David leads directly to Jesus. Want to know the end of the story? Read the genealogy of Matthew. Ruth and Boaz are there. This is a story about God's faithfulness. What do we do with that? Do we just praise God for his faithfulness and say, yep, his plan won't be thwarted, but it's not my plan. I'm not in the storyline. Oh, yes, you are. Every one of you are in the storyline. If you've heard the story of grace. So the question for you and for me is how do we step into the storyline of grace about Jesus? What do we do with ourselves? Well, I think one thing we do with ourselves is we exercise praise for God's faithfulness. We rejoice. <laughs> hey, have you ever tried to rejoice and be immersed in self-pity at the same time? It's kind of hard because you're going to do one or the other. I know you can be kind of a hybrid, but for the most part, if you're absolutely immersed in praise to God, it's hard to be thinking about self and being negative in self-pity because you're praising God. You know, I'm not big on... Uh, well, this is an old author, Norman Vincent Peale and the Power of Positive Thinking. And, and, and I know maybe some of you are, so I don't mean to offend you by saying that. But I'm just not into that that much because I like to say I'm a realist or my wife says, no, you're just a pessimist, you're just negative. Maybe that's right too. On the other hand, I was reminded of Paul in the epistle to the Philippians. And I'm thinking, 
Maybe that is what he was saying. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all for the Lord is at near. He's right around the corner. He's with you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be realistic with God. Tell him your problems and the peace of God when you rejoice, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. And let me say one more thing, says Paul. If you can think of anything that's praiseworthy or good, he didn't give definition to it. It could be root beer. Then rejoice in it. Give thanks. How do we enter the faithfulness of God? We enter it through praise. I think it guards us against self-pity. We also re-enter this this faithfulness of God by remembering His faithfulness. We we remind ourselves of stories like this is why it's so incredibly important. My friends, it's overwhelmingly important to read this book. If you're not doing it, get serious about it. These are the stories of faith with real people like you and me and an absolutely sovereign God who loves you and wants you to find yourself in the story. Read it. Make it your daily staple. Because when you remember the faithfulness of God and you place yourself in that lineage... You're routinely lifted above your circumstances and lifted above self-pity and negative thinking. You realize that their story is your story and your story is their story and you're part of a long history of faithful and unfaithful people that God chooses to bless. How else do you continue in this line of God's faithfulness? You do it, I think, by serving others. You know, if you feel overwhelmed by self-pity, the best way to cure it is to walk into the other's lives. Listen to their stories. Help them out when they hurt. Walk with them and give them assistance. And frequently, you will find that their story is more difficult than yours. And then you'll find, even in the midst of your self-pity, that you have something to give. So you serve. You serve others. In doing that, you enter God's story. Part of the serving others is not just helping them in their pain. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice. Even if it's not your story. You're glad for them, and you rejoice with them. Final thing you do to enter the faithfulness of God's story, I think, is really just a synopsis of what Ruth did. She stayed active, and she kept her eyes wide open for the presence of God. She could have gone to anybody's field. She went to Boaz. She had no idea what she was doing, except that she was called to be busy. 
She knew she was supposed to serve Ruth. She knew she was supposed to serve Naomi. And in the midst of her service, in the midst of her activity, I, I almost don't like this phrase that I'm about to use because it implies that sometimes it doesn't happen. But in the midst of her activity, God shows up. Oh, he's been there all along, but her eyes are open. Why? Because she actively waits. And God shows up. Well, that's a great story, isn't it? It's an even better story. Because it's your story. Live it like Ruth did. Let's pray. God, I thank you for all your overwhelming, rich blessings. I thank you, as the scripture says, uh, that your, your blessings are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. We also admit, Lord, it's, it's not a thanksgiving. It's a confession that even when the blessings are there, we, we allow our circumstances, which are sometimes difficult, to eclipse the blessings. And all we think about is the hard part of life, and all we consider is our dilemma. And we spin into negative thinking and self-pity. And Lord, you're so gracious to remind us um, that that's a destructive habit. And it seems instead of chastising us, you just call us to a new way of life. One of praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving so that we can once again experience the blessings in your presence, which is all around us. So we thank you for that, Lord. We know that tomorrow or the next day, we may lapse into the self-pity. We may be overcome with emotions or circumstances or negative thinking. But jar us, Lord, perhaps through the voice of another, perhaps through the stories of Scripture, perhaps through a still small voice that comes from you uh, to count our blessings, that old hymn said, to name them one by one, to count our blessings to see what God has done. We thank you, Lord. You're a good God. And Ruth understood that. In spite of the circumstances, God is good and he will be faithful to call us to the place that he wants us to be and to bless us in ways that we never expected. We thank you that you're that good God and we pledge our service to you. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.